drop into a new way of wellness with Wonderlust cold pressed herbal supplements. They source roots, flowers, and herbs to craft into rapidly absorbed liquids. These plant based powerhouses are clean and harness nature's wisdom, gifting you remarkable benefits, just as nature intended. Learn more at wonderlust.com.au. We are kind of fanatical. We believe in what we've come to identify with. And if facts come across that differ with what we believe, uh, we find it very difficult to change our minds. And this is a problem of our education system. It's a problem of the internet. It's a problem of politics and the media. And I worry that the way the algorithms are accentuating extreme views on the left and the right, and they upregulate things that you could never say in a group of 30 people sitting in a town hall meeting, but you can say on the internet that unless the social media rules are fixed, we're not going to be able to have a conversation about these things that matter. We have the second in our conversation series with Barry and Nate Hagens. And in this episode, they unpack the topic of human behavior and why that is critical to addressing many of the systemic challenges we face. If you haven't listened to our first chat with Nate, go back now to The Good Society Number 1, where he shares an overview of the various interlocking crises of this moment, or what he calls the human predicament. In this episode, and ones to follow, Barry and Nate will go deeper on various topics and present ideas for how we can all play a role in our collective future. Hello, Mrs. Lieberman. <laughs> We've already How said happy you? birthday. We've said happy birthday to me uh, <laughs> on Monday. I turned forty-four, and I just realised I hadn't pressed the record button. And any conversation with Nate is worth recording from the start. So tell us, just you know, it's it's um, it's really a, a cultural technology observation that some of my best, most amazing conversations with people like you and Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris and some of my ecologist friends are offline and the record button isn't on. And I'm like, God dang it. I wish we'd recorded that. Uh, and then, and then you hit record and you've had a bad day and it's just kind of like, okay, we're supposed to do a podcast now, but yeah, I was just telling you, uh, about a recent meeting with a family member of mine who's in his early eighties and he was complaining about some health problems. I'm like, knowing what I know, dude, you won the lottery. You have children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. You've seen the world. You've lived during this enormous anomalous period of energy and GDP explosion for our species and our culture. And yes, dying is part of living. And as you get old, it's inevitable. But Barry, we record this on the eve of Thanksgiving in the United States. And Thanksgiving had some inauspicious beginnings to it. But it has morphed into a two-day vacation from work where we eat a lot of food and meet with family and watch football and just kind of relax and reflect and then do some shopping, uh, many of us. But 
gratitude, like true thanks and gratitude for the time that we are alive right now, it doesn't happen that often. And I think gratitude of all the spectrum of human emotions is an important one because if you're grateful, then it widens your perspective of empathy and appreciation and behavior change and everything. So I am worried about the future and I know we're gonna get into that on this, this series, but I'm also very grateful for the present. And I think it's important to not lose sight of that. Yeah, it's so beautiful, Nate. I was talking the other night in our MBE, our Masters of Business and Empathy program we run, which is an alternative MBE. Oh, I never heard of that. That's great. I mean, empathy is at the core of what we really need is to widen the boundaries of what we care about and how we think about it. I mean, empathy is such a vital bridge to livable futures, Barry. Mm. I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah, yeah. My husband, Danny, designed it and co-designed it with some of our amazing colleagues. And we've been running it now. It's going into its third year. And people who are coming to do it are CEOs of major organizations around the world. I just did a presentation the other night. Just from the questions that were being asked, I was kind of talking about, for me, I have strong opinions but lightly held because the thing that mm. that really drives me, the reason I'm super excited to see you this morning other than you're a rad human, is that I'm just so curious. My curiosity drives me out of myself and I'm always trying to put myself in situations of empathic stretch just to stretch that so, so, muscles. So you said three things there that I think are interrelated. One is we started this about empathy, but then you mentioned mm. curiosity, and then you mentioned mm. that you have strong opinions, which are presumably on average over time, science tethered, but you hold them lightly, which means that you're able to change your mind and you're able to learn and you're able to learn from other perspectives and listen to other perspectives. And in the aggregate of those three things, curiosity, empathy, and a probabilistic view of the future. Like it's the future and what we should do and what the problems are. They are not binary. They are not zero or one. There's a spectrum and there's lots of things. And our situation is horribly complex and nuanced. So I think having empathy, being curious, but holding your, your opinions lightly is kind of the name of the game, Barry. Yeah, I think it's part of it. I'm really looking forward to getting into the meat of this conversation. We can have our conversation because I want you to just go deeper into the pro-social stuff that you've been working on. But quite frankly, everyone should just listen to and watch on YouTube your Franklies. They're really great. They're short clips on deep issues, juicily done, a quick grab. And your one on Jekyll and Hyde, it sums up the whole thing and then peace out. You know, I just feel like drop the mic. Let's just watch that on repeat and remind yourself every morning. So we're going to be going into that today. And if I'm honest, why I had the record button off when we started, because I wanted to be really personal. I wanted to talk about what I'm going through at the moment. And I wanted to ask you a couple of personal questions, which gives you a different tenor to the conversation, right? Because there's the conversation you share, and then there's the real conversation behind closed doors. And I think that's so, happening so, a lot in the world. So let's just pause it right there, Barry, because that's something I struggle with as well. There are manufactured conversations on the internet and the media that say the correct things that will land with people in the socially acceptable way. 
because humans are eusocial, which means very incredibly social creatures. And we use social sorting mechanisms currently to solve physical world problems. We have a room of 100 people and there's a high status woman or man that's leading the conversation. And we defer to her or him and look around, are other people deferring? And so the fact that some of my best conversations are when the camera is turned off is because we can be totally honest. Make mistakes and work it out and be real. And it's really hard to be real right now because there's a strong cultural police out there just trying to make sure that we say the accepted thing or the acceptable thing. I think it's, yeah, it's really gnarly because we've never needed to be more real with each other and there's more in the way in some ways than ever before. I, I totally agree. Where I was going with that is I'm human and by definition, I'm delusional because <laughs> my identity comes over my truth. And so sometimes the left brain is not aware of what the right brain is doing. And we have these narratives that we tell each other that are socially conforming. So even when I'm sitting by myself in a room, I only tell myself 90% of the truth, unbeknownst to me. When I'm with my very best friend in the world, I will tell 80% of the truth because I know she has some hot buttons on a couple of issues. When I'm in a room of eight people, my colleagues, close friends, I'll tell 70% of the truth because one of them just had a family tragedy and I don't want to upset her by bringing up this issue. When I'm in a presentation to 300 people, I can only tell 50% of the truth because some of these things are too threatening or too obscure or too emotionally charged. Can you imagine the Prime Minister of Australia or the President of the United States in an auditorium of 100,000 people? The more people involved in a conversation, the less actual truth you can say without risk of ostracization or cancellation or, or something. But I do think our culture, and I can't speak for Australian culture, but the United States culture, is starved for authenticity and truth because they feel deeply inside the bullshit coming from both the left and the right. And so, yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm in constant conversation with you. I am literally talking to you in my head sometimes and then I listen to the podcast and then we're doing our work because our work has so much fundamental crossover. But that Jekyll and Hyde issue talking about Dr. Jekyll and how he can plan for a good future and the comfort and convenience that Mr. Hyde longs for. As a person, like I noticed that I have like a superpower that's also my Achilles heel, which is the thing I find most healing and nourishing is an honest conversation where truth can be snipped mm. at and like a truffle uncovered without snouts. If we're digging hard enough, we can smell it. And if we're lucky enough, taste it. But it's like a funky smell and it's a weird taste. It's a rare thing and a thing we have to get really good at finding. And I really love it. Mm. I love truffles and I love truth and authenticity. I love truffles, by the way. <laughs> I have so much has happened since we last spoke. And I think that we could segue, segue into all of these things. But I think if we can wrap them in to that, that one question, which is what I want to center our conversation around, which is why is human behavior a distinct piece in your systemic overview? Yes. So, Barry, my understanding is we're going to have a five or six part series. Yeah. We already talked about the overview of the situation 
which is we need to continue economic growth to let the financial markets and give people the things that they expect. But that is a having a huge impact on the natural world, not only climate change, but lots of other things, but also that the energy and materials required for that are probably not available. And so where do we go from here? I've spent a lot of time, both personally with scientists and with my students, talking about the human behavior problem, part of the problem, because we don't so much face an economic crisis or an environmental crisis as a mismatch of our evolved Stone Age minds effectively with a modern, resource-intensive, technology-rich culture. So human behavior, understanding the human brain as individuals and as 8 billion of us in a modern culture is critical to figuring out paths forward for two reasons. Number one is our aggregate human behavior has brought us to this point and created this situation. And number two is who we are as biological organisms informs what pathways forward there are. So it's not a technology problem that we face. It's not an environmental problem we face. It's a mismatch of how we go through our daily lives trying to get the same emotional states of our great, 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 great ancestors who lived on the Pleistocene in Sydney or New York City with all this technology and stuff. So maybe I could break down the part of this conversation into those two pieces, how we got to this problem and what does it mean for going forward? Yes, do it. There are several aspects of human behavior that are relevant. First of all, we care about the present. We care about this weekend much more than next weekend. And we care about next weekend much more than a year from now. And so all of our behaviors as biological organisms are front-loaded. And emotionally, we don't really care about the future. Cognitively, we can imagine the future and we can make great plans to change our behaviors, to use dental floss and lose weight and read more books and save the environment starting tomorrow. But then when we wake up tomorrow, the next day has become tomorrow. And so there's this dynamic inconsistency on the time scales of the challenges we face and our behaviors. That's, that's one point. Another, as I mentioned earlier, is we're incredibly social. And so we compare ourselves to others. And therefore, in the biological world, relative fitness matters much more than absolute fitness. So even though on average, people in Australia or the United States are vastly materially richer than Australians or Americans a couple generations ago, we still don't feel that richness because we're comparing ourselves to the people that are high status men and women in our culture today. And we're getting signals in the media that you don't have this, you suck. If you buy this, you can live like them. And we're constantly feeling like we don't have enough, even though materially in an absolute sense, we're one of the richest generations ever to live. So we, like other biological organisms, compete for status. And our status of our current world is pecuniary, material, objects, and signals. Another aspect of our behavior that has brought us here is optimal foraging theory. Animals, a cheetah, 
will chase uh, prey and try to chase the best prey for the amount of energy expended. And we're the same thing. We look for two for one deals and half off at happy hour and bargains. We try to maximize our own caloric footprint, which is measured in dollars or yen or euros or whatever. So we're all trying to grow. And the growth of the system is tethered to energy and other things. And we don't necessarily get satisfied when we go to the store and buy something. That gave us the near-term dopamine and neurotransmitters, but that quickly dissipates and we want something different or better or more next week, which is why my storage shed where I live is 10 foot by 20 foot. It's chock full of all the things I've bought in the last 20 years and I pay $100 a month just to keep it there and I haven't opened the freaking thing in four months. Another aspect of our behaviors is that in our ancestral environment, things were relatively stable. And then once in a while, you would see a flash of color in the woods or a movement, and that would correlate with resources and that would generate dopamine. Now we have Candy Crush and emails and Zoom calls and YouTube videos and all kinds of Overwatch shoot 'em up games. And the technology we have today gives us supernormal stimuli, which is targeted neurochemistry orders of magnitude more intense than what our ancestors experience. And what ends up happening is that hijacks our attention away from our real life and the slow pace of our ancestors with growing food or singing a song or just sitting idly under the sun and letting the wind blow our hair and letting your mind wander. Our technology is pulling us away from those human timescale things. Another aspect that has brought us to this precipice is we're very tribal. We grew up anthropologically in bands of 100 to 150 people on the plains of Tanzania and Africa. And that tribe, that band was our life. And we cooperated within that band. We banded together to stave off other tribes or protect from leopards and threats. And so that machinery still resides in our brains today that we are intensely protective of our tribe. Could be the Australian rugby team versus the Kiwi rugby team. Could be a political party, could be a country, could be any sort of thing that we defend our group against the other group. And there's a lot of other aspects of our evolved human behavior that have manifested in 8 billion people cooperating and competing in order to generate profits. The profits are tethered to energy. Energy is tethered largely to fossil energy, which we're depleting 10 million times faster than it was sequestered. And the whole system is optimized for growth. So what I've written is... Number one, we care about now more than the future. Number two, we are social. Therefore, therefore comparison is kind of everything. It's, it's, a, it's a meta lens over how we yeah. spend quality, quality of our life. Number three, um, optimal foraging. We maximise our own gain and growth, yeah. which is tethered to energy in this economy. 
Number four, hyperstimuli, um, targeted mm -hmm. neurochemistry hijacks our attention away from actual life and human timescale. And then number five, we're tribal. So we defend our group against the other group. Mm -hmm. And that is tethered to energy as well. Is that what you're saying? Or tethered to growth? Uh, no, that's a separate point. Yeah. Right. The tribe right now is, the religion right now is economic growth, where all countries and all institutions are cooperating towards growth. But a subset of that is people care about social justice or climate change or nationalism or whatever it is. And send those tribes argue with each other. And the reason that the tribal part matters here is we can't have a civil science-based conversation about the real issues on the planet because identity matters more than truth, which is a separate point. We, we are, yeah, that's a separate point. Like separate in the seven points though, around here? Th this is the bane of my existence is I have too many points. Yeah, no, I get it. And like everyone just go to Wisconsin and study with Nate. I mean, that's the moral of this conversation, but the outcome. And no, that, there's lots of videos online that you can learn from. It's hard to parse it, but it's a central point that humans only recently in our history invented language. And so that we can, with our mouths, create millions of more word combinations that sound good to other people that are disconnected from physical reality. So this has come up twice in two days. One of the things that spun me out when I was studying Steiner education for children, which is Rudolf Steiner's Kingdom of Childhood, there's a whole philosophy there. One of the wackier aspects, which I as an artist found really, really fascinating, was that he wasn't a big fan of teaching children to read and write in the first years of their life. He tethered it to actual physical development and neurological development because he argued that the written letters particularly reading and writing, was so abstract and untethered to reality, meaning the world and the wind in your hair and on your face and the sun rising and setting. And he was like, wait until they've developed as ecological beings first who are tethered to their nervous system and their nervous system is tethered to the world, the actual world around them. Then Later, they can learn abstract language like A, B, C, D, E if you speak English because otherwise we're forcing abstraction on them before they are real in the world and that one of his arguments was that that has caused the abstract world we've created because we've been forcing formation. We've untethered ourselves from the real world in every way and it goes back to even language itself. So anyway, I find that fascinating. I'm not familiar with his work, but yeah, I agree with that. There's another part, which is the internet is 24 seven available for anyone yeah. to find something and they Google what they believe in and they find something that verifies what they believe in. Well, I'm just thinking on that issue of tribal, this, what you're saying that you can mm -hmm. Google and find anything that you believe in. Religion now is economic growth, but then there's also the left and the right, and we're all in our silos. But I wonder on that point, my question was, do you reckon that this split in society, this us and them, this further entrenchment into our tribal bubbles is a 
factor of economic growth, that we're actually all disagreeing with each other as an outcome of the economy itself? Yes and no. I think on the upslope, when we were growing at five or 6% a year, our disagreements didn't matter. Yeah. Because everyone had access, the rising tide would lift all boats. But yeah. now that things are gotten tougher and there's yeah. more wealth and income inequality and some yeah. people are really suffering, then the identity and the different tribes are being blamed yes. for what's happening. Yes. Okay. That but makes Just my point before, though, is... If I were to tell your listeners and you that a 100 foot long fluorescent green platypus was flying over Sydney and Perth and Melbourne, and every time it would see a white car, it would swoop down and eat the car. That is a total fantasy proposal, but I was able to temporarily have your listeners visualize that in their mind for the first time. And there are so many propositions like that floating around the internet that we don't have ecology and energy and systems education in our system. So if something sounds good, like we will be able to live off 100% renewables and save the climate and the Great Barrier Reef while continue to consuming at today's levels, that sounds good. I'm going to believe that story. So there's lots of stories that sound good, but are biophysically implausible. So that's part of the challenge of the human propensity to believe things that conform to their pre-existing beliefs. In other words, we don't have a vector for a civil discussion of the left, the right, the center, using biophysical science-tethered a description of our human ecosystem. That's not happening right now globally. I get it. And I'm a little bit fucked up by it because I'm whatever amount of IQ points less than a Daniel Schmachtenberger. I've got a lot of Mr. Hyde in me, comfort and convenience. I like the comfort version of the story. We have enough time to pivot and I'm an impact investor. So I was like, rad, I'm just going to pivot 100% of my portfolio to the next economy. Everything I've invested in has been with the hope that all boats rise with the tide of the next economy and we'll be right. She'll be right. It's just hard to catch up. You can only catch up at the place that you can catch up. I thought when I heard people planet profit, when I heard we could do triple bottom line investing and stay in the economy as it is, put acupressure points in it, weave through the medicine, we could pivot the whole economy to a next economy, we could hospice the old and midwife the new, but it's becoming more and more dire, faster and faster. I thought we had a longer runway. I thought we had like my lifetime. What is the purpose of capital? I can tell you now that I have an answer. The purpose of capital is to be in service of life. Just so. That feels really rich that to me. That is the core statement of our time. A lot of capital is a terrible thing to waste and to be ultimately in service of life, you have to think two and three steps ahead. To reflect on what you just said, you shouldn't apologize for having a lower IQ than Daniel Schmachtenberger or care about convenience and comfort and the short term and your tribe and the things you care about. That's all of us. That's 99% of us. And that's why you're a dear human being, because you're saying and processing exactly what you're feeling. We're going to get to some of the 
quote unquote solutions, but we still haven't unpacked the problem. Those seven things can be summarized as we are a biological organism that is a product of evolution, not only our bodies, but our brains. And when the agricultural revolution happened, we stopped the hunter-gatherer way of living. We didn't have any wealth because we moved around every few months and we could only take what we could carry with us. And then we started to grow agriculture and amass surplus. And the surplus was stored and then we would trade it with other people and other groups for things. And then we had to have warriors and accountants and priests and these other occupations. Fast forward 10,000 years to the 18th century when we puzzled out how to get this enormously powerful fossil energy and minerals from the ground and that turbocharged the whole thing. So this is not your fault. This is not anyone's fault. But once we understand it, we're all complicit towards playing a role in our collective future. And the reason that human behavior is not only important to understand on how we got to this point, but what would a more sustainable, more realistic future human civilization, culture, interaction with each other in the natural world look like, we don't get happier or higher well-being with more money and resources after basic needs are met. The latest study is you get massive increases in health and well-being when you have nothing up to around 60 or 70,000 US dollars per year, after which you get very little hedonic increase in well-being and benefits from more at that level. You get a little bit because it's status and other things. But if you only make $10,000 a year, moving up to 50,000 is a huge increase in your your benefits. So we don't need all this stuff. A lot of us is this is just a rat race to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians. I love that. I get it. There's a lot of imagining to this future society. I love that game as well. Try comparing yourself to someone living a hundred years in the future. That's a hard vision to have that's positive at the moment. Future visioning is really important. I want to get to points six and seven on the seven aspects of human behavior because we're still moving through that. But I just want to flag that I think my overarching question that I was just muddling through (laughs) in life is how do we play the right role commensurate with our sense-making and our agency? Okay. So this is a nonlinear conversation because we haven't talked about energy, money, the economy, and the environment yet. But this is my belief. My understanding is we have to do three things simultaneously. We have to educate more and more people about the systemic predicament that humans face. Education. More people, wider education on all this stuff. We also have to focus on inner development. The human potential, we're not consumers, we're humans, and we are capable of so much more than we're exhibiting right now in our lives because we're just enslaved by the game, the economic system. When we talk about energy, I'm going to claim that we've outsourced our decision-making to the anonymous market system, and that market system is now more powerful than philanthropists or politicians or anyone. 
So we have to focus on the inner development of spiritual, emotional, psychological of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of humans. And then the third path is we'll need to change the infrastructure of how we live because we cannot continue to live at 190 billion light bulbs worth of energy, which is what the global economy uses. And most of that is based on fossils. So we're going to have to live more locally. We're going to have to substitute community and social capital for what we currently see as financial capital and stuff. And we're going to have to have different infrastructure relationships for all the things that energy gives us, like heat and food and manufacturing and air conditioning and waste and all that stuff is going to be have to be reimagined. Right. The challenge, as you have felt in your own impact investing work, is that the narrative right now is looking one step ahead and the one step ahead is growth. And we're going to grow the economy by using renewable energy and that's going to mean we use less carbon that is not happening we are growing the economy by using more renewable energy and more coal and natural gas and more of everything so the real effective philanthropy in my opinion is going to look two or three steps ahead and plan for what is politically and socially unpopular now but what's going to be necessary in the future and part of that is your podcast at Dumbo Feather is educating and inspiring people to meet the future halfway. And the more people we have that understand this and have empathy and a pro-social outlook, the more that we can change the initial conditions of the future when these events unfold as they've been doing a little bit, but they're probably gonna accelerate later this decade. So I think we need a lot more people like you that understand this at a visceral and intellectual level, but still are cheerful and positive and roll up your sleeves and say, this is the time that I was born to impact the future. And I roll my sleeves up and play a role despite what we face. And we haven't really gotten into the what we face part, but it is a lot. I mean, there's a lot on the horizon with energy, finance, geopolitics, and the environment. And the natural reaction to hearing it is to shut down and focus on the present because it's too much. But the more people that understand it and care about it, then that gives us the opportunity to share. And like you said, one of the things you value the most is having an authentic conversation with another human being about these issues. We need to scale that times orders of magnitude more, but not with the delusional flying platypus sort of solutions, but things that are more grounded in biophysical reality. I want to talk about how lately I've felt pretty crushed because people don't like to hear the truth. And when you go hunting for it like a truffle dog, <laughs> you get in sticky situations with people's denial or anger and fury that you named that thing that you said that truth it's my truth I'm not talking capital T I'm just like trying to get to authenticity trying to get to real connection where we're saying things honestly to each other depending on how many people are in front of you depends on the degree to which you can actually speak authentically I find that increasingly harder and harder so I just want to retreat it's hard it's just hard to kind of lean in and and but what you're feeling what you're describing 
I guarantee you is being felt by the majority of your listeners and the majority of people listening to my podcast as well. This is what people are feeling. And to give voice to that, I don't know what it will do. To talk out loud about how you're feeling and the struggles you have with telling the truth because you get slammed down by people who are business as usual or who are climate deniers or fossil advocates or whatever flavor they are, it is very, very difficult to navigate this socially. And the other challenge is, you know, when I have a podcast and there's a hundred comments, 95 of them are totally supportive and congratulatory and thankful. And five of them are, you're a freaking idiot. You know that the earth has always warm before. The five that are critical of me, I obsess about those more than the other 95. And that's just classic social psychology. We're all wired like that. And so speaking the truth in this time of complexity and systemic risk is very difficult for sure i don't know how long i'm going to be able to do it i I see that because it's such a gnarly time and people are more anxious more afraid more in their echo chambers they look for targets and no one i don't want to be a target who wants to be a target so it's like don't do the podcast don't build the community quietly go into that good night with a book (laughs) and play classical music and or jazz and and we're out i hear you Barry, really, I do. I feel a little bit of it myself because I'm now thrust onto the public scene. What I'm trying to do is give the microphone to diverse voices. Today, I did a podcast that was out with Vandana Shiva. Most people love her. Some people hate her. And, you know, next week it's, you know, every week is different. And then I do my Franklies. And invariably, with the number of things I'm saying, there's going to be some upset people And there's 8 billion people and we cannot please everyone with what we're saying and doing. We have to stay tethered to our hearts and tethered to the truth and the science. Um, But it's it's not easy. Um, I kind of will speculate that your personality is such that you also won't give up easily on this. Um, but given your, um, your wealth and, and your situation, I can see that the, as events get scarier, it might be, um, you might want to retreat from the public eye a little bit, but I think you have to, um, use the podcast as a vector to get these conversations going in Australia. Yeah. So we are kind of fanatical. We believe in what we've come to identify with. And if facts come across that differ with what we believe, uh, we find it very difficult to change our minds. And this is a problem of our education system. It's a problem of the internet. It's a problem of politics and the media. And I worry that the way the algorithms are accentuating extreme views on the left and the right And they upregulate things that you could never say in a group of 30 people sitting in a town hall meeting, but you can say on the internet that unless the social media rules are fixed, we're not going to be able to have a conversation about these things that matter. So the number six thing is that belief and identity matter more than the truth. The seventh thing is that we are evolved organisms. And this evolutionary psychology is in each of us. Each of us have conserved 
algorithms in our brain for cooperation or competition, depending on how things are, but that our evolved behavior won't change in our lifetimes, Barry. It won't change in the next 300 years from now. These are hardwired over thousands and thousands of generations. But what can change is that humans coordinate and cooperate in groups, and those groups can be as large as countries or right now a global economic growth-tethered culture, that cultural evolution can happen orders of magnitude faster than human evolution. So if the culture changes, we will change with it because the signals we get on how to get the neurotransmitters, the emotional states of our successful ancestors will change. For instance, we have always cared about status and comparing ourselves to others. 20,000 years ago, it was about who could tell a story or who was kind or a good hunter or um, a shaman or any of the good musician. Everyone had a roughly the same amount of stuff, but people had different status depending on their standing in the tribe. There was an American Indian tribe called the Potlatch Indians in the state of Washington that the status would be the chief who would give away the most wealth and throw the biggest feast for neighboring visitors. Like they would give things away and that's what made them high status and respected. Our current culture is having a shopping center or the most digits in the bank or the most Facebook or Twitter followers. More is correlated with status. But as we head to a resource-constrained world, there may be other things that are socially accepted. Like my students, a lot of them don't even have a driver's license. They don't have a car because they live in a city. And so already the younger people are starting on their own to compete and compare themselves to other things than conspicuous consumption. In fact, there's a word in the younger generation called flex. And a flex means to show off your fancy watch or your designer handbag or your $200 shoes. And flex has a negative connotation, like you're showing off how wealthy you are and how cool you are. And that's like, pushed back against. So in our ancestral world, there was something called strong reciprocity. And this is in the animal world as well. If there's a silverback gorilla that beats up another gorilla just because he wants to, other gorillas will come to its defense. If that other gorilla is antagonistic towards the silverback and does something snarky, the other gorillas won't support him. So there's this deep sense of fairness and um, reciprocity in our ancestral world, where if someone does something that is unethical or wrong, people stand up and stand against it. But in our world, the economic system, the market has become so powerful that people don't have that natural voice and that natural agency to fight back. But I think culturally we can change very fast, which I don't know how we're gonna change, but cultural evolution happens very fast and it's very possible and very likely to happen in coming decades. I'm, I'm hoping that everything we've talked about today was like enough juice and meat on the bone for everyone to chew on until the next conversation that we have. I don't know if I asked it 
yet in this thing, but you said it in one of your previous podcasts on your podcast channel, The Great Simplification. It's a really hard question, but I just want to put it forward to my community on this podcast. Who do you want to be in a post-growth world? And that's an amazing question. The core question that we face is how can we have more connection in a lower material future world? Because connection is, at the end of the day, way more valuable than stocks or bonds or digits in the bank. And so we have to have a lot more people that know that that's true and start acting on that before the great simplification arrives in earnest. So it's kind of like simplify first and beat the rush on some of these issues. And I think this intuitively makes sense to a lot of people. So I look forward to unpacking that more next time. So I just want to say that when I'm hurt, I retreat. And I know that's like other people. When I'm hurt or I'm tired, I go into comparison. Instagram doesn't serve that very well. I go into consumption. I long for the days of yore where endless growth was possible. So I just want to say if my being honest about all that stuff is helpful, I think that what you're talking about, Nate, is is right. And everyone I've been talking to who's looking at metacognition and systems change and and problem solving for this gnarly moment we find ourselves in is saying invest locally and believe in connection with others and oneself is as like a core principle. If we don't have that local outlet, what you just said is going to really come true is when you're hurt, you're going to retreat to self-medicating or doing Instagram or doing other things that are not ultimately helpful to you or society. And so I think a lot more people are going to be hurt, quote unquote, in the coming decade as economic times get tougher. So unless we have communities and pilots and models and outlets, the default is to turn to unhealthy behavior which is why learning about this and understanding it ahead of time gives people a little bit of runway to take ownership of some of their behaviors and really get going on some of this stuff. And as far as being authentic, you might say, I'm certainly not a legend, but I am kind of an expert on how this stuff all fits together, but I'm also a human and I don't know how to process all this and I don't know how to live a better life with less resources. I'm trying. I use a lot less resources than I did 10 years ago. The best things in life for me right now are the conversations I have with people like you and people on my podcast, but I'm figuring all this stuff out too. I don't have a formula on how to live uh, in the great simplification, I'm learning and I'm, I'm worried and I'm sharing and I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, Barry. Yeah, let's do it together. Thanks, buddy. For more Nate Hagen's genius, check out his podcast, The Great Simplification. And keep an eye out for more episodes with him over the next few months on the Dumbo Feather podcast. This episode was brought to you by Wonderlust. Drop into a new way of wellness with Wonderlust cold-pressed liquid herbal supplements. Shop now at wonderlust.com.au.